University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, y'all pray for me because I'm going to be using my tablet again. Hopefully it'll go better than it did last time. We have been talking, as you know, about the parables, uh, some of the parables of Jesus, and what we can learn from them today. The reason that Jesus told parables and stories was, uh, as we've talked about before, he could have come right out and said things directly, but very often he used stories to get his point across. And stories communicate to us on a deeper level than just something that we come out and say. And the other great thing about parables and stories is that we can come back to them time and time again if we will renew the way we look at them and we can learn something different every time. Today we're going to look at another parable, uh, a specific parable, but I haven't told you what it is because I want you to experience in a slightly different way. I've reworked the parable in a way in a modern setting and I want you to see if you can find yourself in it. Now this is not a guessing game, we're not trying to, to figure out which parable is John talking about here. Um, the idea is to figure out where you are in the story and to experience the feelings there and see if together we might see what it is that Jesus was teaching when he told this parable the first time. So put yourself in the story and stay there and see how you feel. So I have a couple of things that you need to imagine at the beginning. First of all, I want you to think about a person or a group of persons that you have real difficulty with, the kind of person you typically just don't want to be around. It might be, it's going to be a different person for each of us. It might be a person of a different color might be a person of another culture or religion. Maybe it's a Tennessee fan or an Alabama fan. Maybe it's someone we know personally, someone that you have hurt and never repaired that relationship. You're afraid that they might just turn around and leave if you were to see them. Or maybe it's someone who's hurt you and someone that you can't stand. So in one hand, I want you to keep that person uh, and their, the image of them in your mind. In the other hand, I want you to think of a person that you love most dearly can be a child, a spouse, a friend. Picture that person clearly in your mind. And now we begin. I want you to imagine that this loved one, this person whom you love most dearly, has been getting more and more sick for several days. And now it's late at night and they've gotten a really high fever and you know it's time to get them to the hospital. So you do the natural thing. You call 911 for an ambulance, but they say because of things that are going on, they're not gonna be able to get to your house for at least an hour. So you decide that it's time for you to take things into your own hands and to drive them to the hospital yourself. Now on the way to the hospital, you are on a dark and deserted stretch of road and that's when you suddenly notice that the car is having problems. You smell smoke and suddenly all the lights on your dashboard come on and the car begins to sputter. You pull off to the side of the road, the car stops and you can't get it to start again. You're not sure what to do. You don't really deal with cars in this way so you do the most natural thing, you reach for your cell phone and that's when you realize that in the chaos of leaving you have left it at home. You have no way of getting in touch with anybody who can help you. What in the world will you do? The, the loved one that's beside you sitting in the front seat beside you is groaning and obviously in pain. So this is a rhetorical question. What are you feeling in this moment? What emotions are you experiencing? 
So you do the only thing that you can do. You get out and start waving at passing cars, trying to get them to stop. Now, it's very late at night, as we said, and there's very few cars on the road, especially this road. And you've heard recently about shootings of drivers and random shootings. So you're nervous to do this, but you have no choice. You have to get help. Every time a car passes, it seems almost like the drivers actually speed up to go by faster, as if they're pretending that they didn't see you there. Maybe they are scared of the shootings too, but you just wish someone would stop to help. After a few minutes, you're so frustrated and angry that no one will stop. You check back in on your loved one and find that they're unconscious and you can't wake them up. They're burning up with fever. You're so scared that something's going to happen to them before you can make it to the hospital. So you get out and you keep waving and getting out into the street even, but no one stops. A couple of times you see cars that you think you recognize, maybe somebody who's a good friend from church, but you're not really sure because they were going so fast and it was dark. And there was another one you could have sworn looked like an undercover police car, and surely if anybody would stop to help you, it would be that person. But they drove right on by too. And after a half hour of waving and jumping and doing everything you can, you're exhausted and you just want to give up. But you try the car again just to make sure nothing happens. It won't start. You're afraid to leave your loved one behind in the car, but you realize you're going to have to walk for help. So you kiss them, crying, just wishing that they would wake up and say, I feel better, or say, everything's going to be all right. Just say something, but they don't. And you know that you have to get out and go and leave your loved one behind. So you push yourself out of the car and begin walking towards that gas station that you saw a few minutes ago, and that's when you hear one more car coming. All you can see are the headlights of the car. So many cars by this point have gone by that you've lost all hope that anybody's going to stop. So you make a small, feeble wave, just expecting them to go on by, but you see the headlights flash, and they start slowing down. You are flooded with relief. Finally, you can get the help that you need and your loved one can get to the hospital. So you have new energy now and you start walking forward as the other person gets out of their car. And the other driver starts walking towards you and for a few seconds, because of the bright headlights and the darkness, you can't make out who it is. But suddenly, both of you stop at the same time because it's that person, the first one that we talked about. What are you feeling now? At any other time, this is the last person that you would want to see, but you think of your loved one sick and unconscious with a fever in the car. At any other time, you wouldn't reach out to this person, but now you don't have a choice. All that you can do is to hope. Hope that that person really will give you the help that you need. Hope that the thing that you're afraid of might happen between you won't happen. You both stand there for a few moments, looking at each other long enough to think that maybe the other driver's about to get in the car and drive away but they step forward and say with open arms, is everything okay? How can I help? You explain the situation quickly, afraid that this other driver will say that they won't help, but as soon as they realize what's happening, they move quickly. Okay, let's get your loved one into my car and we can get them to the hospital and I'll call a friend who will come and check on your car and see what we can do. So gently, the other driver helps you move your loved one to the back seat of their car. Together, you drive to the hospital where the doctors take your loved one back and begin helping them. And meanwhile, the other driver steps outside and makes a phone call, and after a few minutes, they come back in and say, I had my friend go and check your car. All you needed was some cooling fluid. They put some in already, and everything's working fine. You are surprised and thankful, and you start to ask how much you can pay this person to repay this person who's been a good Samaritan for you. But the driver says, I'll pay for the coolant. Don't worry about it. You have enough to worry about right now. 
It's like a dream. You expected it to be the worst possible outcome, but everything has turned out better than you could have imagined in the middle of this awful situation. Now your loved one will get the help that they need and your car will be back here in a few minutes with you, with you at the hospital. And all because that person stopped to help you. So did you figure out pretty quickly what story I was telling? Of course, I mentioned it there at the end that it was the story of the Good Samaritan. Sometimes stories and parables, especially in the scripture, are so familiar to us that we can't even see them in a new way. We hear them so often. If you're like me, you've heard that story a hundred, a thousand times, and we just kind of hear it and say, yep, yep, priest walked by, Levite walked by, Samaritan stopped, everything was okay. We have to experience these stories in a new way sometimes to learn something new from them. So what we're going to do is go through the original telling of the Good Samaritan story and talk about what was going on there, and then we'll stop, step back and see what is it that Jesus might even be speaking to us these 2,000 years later through this powerful story. It's in Luke chapter 10, and we're starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we have this idea that when these people came to Jesus, frequently they were antagonistic, like they were trying to get him to say something. But in this case, it really was probably just a friendly debate. Um, at that time, and even now, the Jewish people love to debate the law. You have writings of hundreds of rabbis through the centuries as they argue back and forth with other people about what this means or what that means. So think of Jesus smiling as this man comes and asks him an important question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I can almost smile, see Jesus smiling when the lawyer gives that answer. And then there's the word love, love your neighbor. Love is a word we use a lot, especially as Christians, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But for now, it's enough to see that the lawyer wanted to continue the debate. He gave a good answer to the question, so he wanted the debate to keep going. And it's one thing to talk about love, but it's another thing to do love. Jesus could have replied with a simple statement here in answer to the lawyer's question. A neighbor is anybody who's in need. A neighbor is anyone that you encounter. A neighbor is simply another fellow human being. But the point was so much stronger made with this story. So Jesus begins in verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, if you've heard sermons or Bible stories on this, you probably can give me even more context here than I have time to give you this morning. Suffice to say that this kind of thing really did happen. This would have been a familiar story to people. And this road was known already to be a dangerous area, and it wasn't a good idea to travel alone. But for whatever reason, this man was traveling from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits beside the road. Jesus continues, by chance a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side of the road. Now we could stop here and say a whole lot about these two people who decided not to stop and point out that they were the most religious people of their time and how they, the ones who really should have been showing love and compassion, decided that they would keep going. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't really matter to us because they move on. They're out of the story as quickly as they come into it. But 
Verse 33, Jesus says, then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, again, stepping back and looking at context, the Samaritans and Jews, again, if you've heard anything about this, you know that they hated each other. It was sort of a thing about race, but really they were of the same tribe and family almost, but at some point in their history, and we won't get into all of it now, they both kind of took different directions in terms of where we worship God, how we worship God. They both considered that they worshiped God in the correct way and that the other people didn't. And it became such a strong uh, antagonism between them that they really were enemies. They hated each other in a lot of ways. The Samaritan, though, was that oh-no kind of person. And maybe if the Jewish man was still conscious as he was laying beside the road, he might have even looked up and seen this Samaritan and said, oh no, maybe somebody else will come along, you go away. But for whatever reason, he accepted the help and the Samaritan helped him. And not just helped him, he didn't just say, okay, that's nice, you'd be well, I'm gonna give you a couple of things and I'm gonna go on. He took him to the inn, he gave him what he needed in order to be well and paid his own expenses. Now, which of these three, Jesus asks the lawyer at the end of the story in verse 36, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now you go and do the same. So there's a few things that I want to point out that we can kind of observe about this parable, both the version that I told at the beginning and Jesus' version, which is much better and much more complete. The first thing that we need to realize is that love is more than a nice feeling. Our language today has lots of things about the word love. We use the word love a lot. And consider this, I can say in one breath that I love Tanya, my wife, of 22 years we celebrated our anniversary on Friday. I can say that I love her in one breath and in the next breath say something like, I really love pizza because I do enjoy pizza. Now, when we're talking about these two different things, it kind of dilutes the meaning of the word love because what is love? Is love about things? Is love about people? Do I really love pizza as much as I love my wife? Of course not. It's a different kind of thing. But again, we use the word love so often that it has become um, diluted. It has lost a lot of its meaning. And when we hear the command so often, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself, I think we lose sight of what that really means. Now, I want to be clear before I move on that I do believe Jesus is advocating that we change our attitudes about other people, the way we feel and the way we think about them, especially people that we tend to dislike. I'm not saying that love is not a nice feeling towards somebody else. I'm saying that it's more than that. Because in situations like this, Jesus usually takes things farther than I'm comfortable going. And here he tells a story about active love not just a nice feeling that we have toward other people. In fact, good feelings are hardly part of this story at all. At one point, Jesus says that the Samaritan felt compassion or pity for the Jewish man, but that was about it. And let's be honest, when we were in that bad situation that you were thinking about in the car, we need more than just good feelings from others. Those drivers who came by and drove on by, they might have wished you well. Those people might have even thought, I hope that person's okay. Maybe someone else will stop for them. Maybe some good Christian people drove by and said, I'm going to pray for them. But Jesus' story shows us that love is not just about what we feel and what we intend, but what we do. It's love and compassion that makes us pull off the side of the road for somebody, even our own enemy. 
So the question in this parable is not just about who's our neighbor. The question is, what does it mean to love? Surely you can say you love everyone, but would you stop on the side of the road for that person? Because love is more than just a nice idea. It's something that we do. The next thing that we can understand about this parable that helps us understand ourselves better and our world better is that we all have an other. Now, I'm not just talking about racism. Racism, I think, is a symptom of something that's deeper inside of us, a deeper human problem that we have. We all have a tendency to create an other, and I mean all of us. It's such a deep-rooted problem that often we don't recognize we're doing it. From a very earliest day, as days as human beings, and when we lived in tribes and families, it was in our nature to find someone else who was an other, someone who was not like us in some way, someone we had to protect ourselves from. In those days, as early humans, it was another tribe or another family. Later, it was another kingdom or another country or another religion, another language, another cultural uh, customs. And that tendency lasts today. If we go deeper than race, if you were to find a society that does not have problems with racism, you will find inevitably that they have a problem with something else that divides them. Gender, age, money, social status, religion. It is a human problem that's based on a human need. We all have a need to belong and to feel good about ourselves. And the easiest way to feel like we're in is to identify somebody who's out. And the easiest way to make ourselves feel better about ourselves is to say, at least I'm not like that person. And that's our other. We can push them away and not deal with them anymore. And I say this as a human tendency because it's not written in stone. This is something that we can change. And I'm pretty sure that all of us have found ways to begin to love people that we did dislike and tried to come to terms with what it means to love our enemy. At our best, we can overcome those tendencies. But at our worst, we end up making our other less than human. And that's what has led to many of the atrocities that we have seen through history, genocide, the Holocaust, wars, it's easier to hurt someone if you don't see them as fully human. Tanya and I have lived in a few different places and we've had uh, lots of culture changes through those years. And in different places, different cultures have different others. For instance, I grew up in Alabama and the only direction that we pointed when we needed an other was we pointed west and said, well, at least we're not like Mississippi. We might be 49th in this, but at least we're not 50th because that's Mississippi. Um, when I lived in Virginia, they said the same things, lo and behold, but they didn't point to Mississippi. They pointed west again and said, West Virginia, at least we're not the rednecks like the West Virginians. Uh, they have it worse. We might be 48th, but at least they're 49th. Slovaks look down on Roma and look down on Ukrainians. It goes on and on and on. Every culture, every people has an other. But what is it for us? What is it for you and for me? In public discourse and politics, it's usually that person who's the cause of all the problems that we have in America or all the problems that the church is having. Maybe it's the Republicans, maybe it's the Democrats, maybe it's immigrants, or maybe it's people who are bigoted against immigrants. Maybe it's LGBTQI people or the people who are against all of that. Maybe it's people of another color, another religion, another culture. Maybe it's just people who are filthy rich and it seems like they're blowing their, all their money on nothing. Or maybe it's people who are poor and we can think, you know what, they really need to get their act together so they won't be poor anymore. Maybe it's Catholics or Protestants. Maybe it's that group of people who think they have the whole Christianity thing figured out and everybody else is wrong. 
Maybe it's a fan of a rival sports team, and we laugh about that. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but see what feeling you get at a football game when you're sitting there and something happens with the other team. It stirs up something deep inside of us. It's that other. When you dig deep enough, you'll find out who your others are. And that person, that person, is the one Jesus tells us we need to show love to. Not just to have a nice feeling, not just to wish them well, not just to pray for them on the side of the road, but to show active love for them. And that's hard. So hard that we don't want to do it. And that's why Jesus uh, says it's important to love your neighbor as yourself. Immediately the lawyer wants to say, well, who's my neighbor? Because to most of us, it's just not possible to love everybody that way. At least that's what we think. But throughout his ministry, Jesus continually shows us that it is possible to love people that way. Jesus interacted with everyone and showed us how to really love everyone, even the Samaritans, even our enemies, even the people who nailed him to the cross. So the last thing that this story shows us, I think, that we can take with us today is that we, we have an other, but in order to love that other, we have to come closer to them. We tend to stay away from people that we don't like. Have you noticed when you're angry with somebody or when they've hurt you, even somebody that you really love, what do we do? We want to kind of stay away from them. We want to avoid them because hate is easier to hold at a distance. In Slovak, uh, when we read this passage, and I preached on it a few years ago, um, the word for neighbor is blizny, which has a, a much more powerful meaning, I think, because it means the one who's near you, nearby to you or right next to you. Our neighbor is someone who is close to us, and our enemies are the ones that are far away from us. So in order to make that change, in order to change them and begin to love that other, we have to get closer to them. What did the Samaritan have to do to help this Jewish man? What did the driver have to do to help you in the story? They had to get closer. It can mean physically closer, but really mostly it means coming closer to them personally, trying to understand them, trying to learn more about them, getting to know them, find out what motivates them, what gives them joy, what makes them angry. And when you do, when you come closer to somebody like that, even somebody that you dislike or you feel like is your enemy, you begin to discover that that person is a human being just like you. They have strong feelings just like me. They have people they don't like, just like me. They have hopes and dreams and fears and sadness and family, all of these things. They are human beings just like us. Hatred, racism, and prejudice survive because we stay away from people. It's easier to look at a whole group of people from a long way off and say they're all like that. But once you start coming closer to them, you see an individual person, not a stereotype. And that's when we feel that compassion, that's when we begin to feel love for them. And that's how Jesus can say something as radical as love your enemy, because when you get closer to somebody and closer and closer, suddenly they're not your enemy anymore, they're your neighbor. Jesus doesn't say keep your enemies, he says love your enemies and continue to get closer to them until you don't have that enemy anymore. And it's the same way Paul could write that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, because in God's kingdom, we won't separate us, ourselves by those categories anymore. There is no enemy. There is no other. There's just the neighbor that needs our help. And Jesus says we have to tear down those walls by coming closer. As we conclude this time, um, our response today is sharing the journey, and that's when you have an opportunity to talk to a person beside you 
um, or to talk in small groups. And the questions to consider today is, first of all, who is your other? Who are those people or that person that you really dislike, that you have a hard time with? Name that. Uh, if you're comfortable naming it out loud to the person next to you, you might not be, because it might be that person, I don't know. But um, name that for yourself, and then talk about how can you take a step nearer to that person this week? What's something specific this week that you can do to come closer to that person? So I want to give you three or four minutes to discuss, again, in pairs and small groups, to talk about who is your other and how you can come closer to them this week.